you know that we're right in that kickoff stage of our Upward Sports Ministries. One of the biggest things we do as a congregation in reaching out, uh, equaling the kind of contact that we even have through Vacation Bible School. And we have some needs right now of some coaches to come in and help us. We're having to develop two instructional league teams, and we'll need four coaches for that to occur. And then we need one new team, fourth through sixth grade boys, and we'll need two coaches for that. So we need a total of six new coaches. Wouldn't it be great if we kind of filled that need today? And so if you would like to function as a coach, you don't have to have an excellent knowledge of soccer, but we can teach you and get you up to speed quickly. Please contact Wendy Blocker or Christetta, or if you don't know them, catch me after the service and give me your name, and I will make sure that you are in touch with them. So please help us out in that great ministry that we have with our community. Second, just want to remind all of the men of our upcoming men's retreat. You'll be hearing more details about that at the close of our service. But if you're not signed up to be a part of that, we would love for you to be there. The fellowship is good. We'll do some bike riding. If you're into that, do some fishing. If you're into that, golfing. If you're into that, or just hanging out, and we're all into that. So come and join us and be a part of that. All the information about it is in your worship guide. Turn with me, Jeremiah chapter 29. Pretty popular um, chapter in the Bible. In fact, a lot of folks love Jeremiah 29.11. Some folks call it their life verse or their favorite verse or their chief verse. And we actually won't be camping there today, although I think it's a wonderful verse of God's promises. But we're actually looking at God's call to pray for our community. And so that's going to be the focus today. Now, uh, I got a new pointer uh, and slide changer. It actually has reverse on it. And so I'm pretty excited about that because the one before didn't. So I'm going to test it out. Let's see. All right, will it, will it back up? Ha! Yeah, I'm really happy about that. So uh, here's the meeting tonight. If you're interested in our ministry in Ecuador, join us. If you just want to come and be informed so you can be a good prayer partner, join us here tonight in the sanctuary. We'll walk through the plan for this year's trip and see how God is guiding us. And uh, if you just have questions at all, we'll be happy to answer those. So meet us here at 6.30. We won't start at 6.30 sharp. We know there's kind of a soft launch of that because we're just getting out of life groups. So if you're going to run a little bit late, that's okay. We won't really get started till about 6.40 or 6.45. So uh, look forward to being with you for that time and planning together. We're focusing on praying and not losing heart. If you are like me, and from the conversations I've been having with you, you seem to be, prayer is a struggle. Any of you find that prayer is a struggle? Can you amen to that? It really is something we wrestle with. And it's very much of a struggle because it's a war. It's a kind of spiritual war that our flesh wants to push us away from because it wants to remain independent. Our enemy, the devil, wants to discourage us from it because he doesn't want us to be dependent on God and drawing from him the strength for this war. And the world mocks us for our reliance upon God. So that's 
pressing against us. So those three enemies are coming against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And so prayer is, is a war. It's a kind of warfare. What's interesting in Jeremiah 29, how God includes it in the letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles. Now I need to give you a little backdrop for this so you can see how serious this moment is and how important this call to prayer in Jeremiah 29 is. During the latter days of the southern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom had already been demolished, Samaria and that region, by the Assyrian forces. That happened around 720, 721 B.C. Well, the time that we're dealing with is a little over a hundred years later. And we're at the time when there's pressure from the Babylonian kingdom and from the kingdom of Egypt on the kingdom of Israel to not follow God and to trust in other deities. And the Israelites are turning and have been turned for quite a while from God. And so judgment is looming. And Jeremiah's book is about God's judgment coming to the southern kingdom, primarily referred to as the kingdom of Judah. Well, that's going on, and around 605, there is an important battle. And in that battle, the people of Egypt are defeated and the Babylonians become very powerful. They sweep down and make a stop in Jerusalem. And they force the king at that time to turn his allegiance from Egypt and turn his allegiance to Babylon. And he does so. And in the year 605, something strange happens. When that takes place, they take a few hostages. And those hostages are people of royal descent. And people who are intellectually sharp. They're considered to be really good looking. And they're the kind of people that would make good servants in the kingdom of Babylon. And so they take some of those people. And you say, why is he even telling that story? Well, because somebody that you think about a lot in the Bible is in that moment. His name is Daniel. This is during Jeremiah's time and Jeremiah's writing. And Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are all taken captive in that time around 605 And they're shipped off up north. And they're the first little group of exiles taken during this reign of Babylon over Israel. And so, during the next few years, Daniel's going through Daniel chapter 1, where they're getting those three years of indoctrination. You remember when Daniel 1 opens up? And there's the story about Daniel not wanting to eat the wine that's sacrificed to the idols and the meat that's sacrificed to the idols. And 
He and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going through this training period of learning the language and the customs and the literature of the people of that land. Well, all that's going on while Jeremiah is doing his prophecy. Well, a little bit later, about six or seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and pays another visit. And around 598 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar takes more than 10,000 people captive and he ships them off. He takes the merchants who handle hardware. He takes the people who make spears and who do any kind of hardware work. He takes away their ability to make weaponry. And he ships those people and some royal people and a bunch of the people of the land who would be beneficial to Nebuchadnezzar. And he ships them all off to Babylon. So there's 10,000 or more of them, plus the few people who went up during Daniel's time. And so right after all this happens, those people are really in disarray. The kingdom of Babylon is pressing upon Judah, about to overthrow it permanently. These 10,000 plus have been moved out of their homeland by their enemies. They've been made slaves and captives. And they've been relocated to a place where they don't know the language. They don't know the territory. They don't know the neighborhood. They don't know their neighbors. And they're replanted up there and dispersed all around the kingdom of Babylon. And so their enemy has taken them captive and he has relocated them. Now, during that time, Jeremiah is compelled by God to write a letter to Daniel's group and to the group that went after him, the 10,000 or more who went up there, and to encourage them. And that's what Toby read just a few minutes ago. And it's about the relocation of people under a siege by their enemy, placed in a land of the language they can't speak, a culture they don't understand, totally surrounded by pagan culture, godless people, worshiping idols, carrying out life apart from God. And these people from Israel are dropped right in their neighborhoods. And so there's this letter that goes out to them. And the letter is about how to conduct yourself in those neighborhoods. How to live among people that are different from you. How to live among people who are culturally different, spiritually different, ethnically different, different in every conceivable way. How to live among them. And so they get dropped in there. Now some false prophets come on the scene right when they get dropped in. And those false prophets go to those people who've been dropped off in the heart of Babylon and they start going around to them saying, Hey guys, gals, don't settle in. Don't settle in. Don't even unpack your boxes. You need to just stay ready because God is going to snatch you all away and bring you down and rescue you. Well, Jeremiah sends a letter and says, Don't listen to the false prophets. And then he tells them how long they're going to have to live in these new neighborhoods. And it is very discouraging to them. He tells them that they're actually going to live in these new neighborhoods, not one, not five, not ten, not twenty years, but seventy years. 
Now, I'm 56. What would that tell me is going to happen to me? It means I'm not going to die in my homeland. I'm going to die on foreign soil. My children are in their 20s. They're going to die on foreign soil. So it's, it's going to be some really tough news to, to, to digest. And so Jeremiah says, here's what you're going to do while you're there. You're going to have to understand that you are... Well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. So, here we go. Jesus taught us to pray and not lose heart. And here's a great example of that in the history of Israel. The prayerful mindset is the mindset, praying that we may know God, grow in His likeness, and show others what He's like. This is the prayerful mindset. This is the missional mindset. This is what we are about. We need to be increasing in our knowledge of God in such a way that we're being transformed in His likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the truth of His Word, and by the community of faith, and by the situations we find ourselves in, so that we may show other people what He's like. That's what's going on. In this passage of scripture. So, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles was a call to prayerful intercession. Listen to the development of this in verse 4. Jeremiah 29, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Then here's that call to prayer. Look at verse 7. And seek the welfare. The word for welfare here is the word shalom. You've heard that word, haven't you? Shalom. It means spiritual relational, emotional, physical wholeness and integrity. It's a huge word. It's used throughout the book of Jeremiah. He says, seek the peace or the shalom, the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its Shalom, it's welfare, you will have shalom. You will have welfare or peace. And so what God does in the very middle of this relocation, He sends a letter to them and He lets them know how long they're going to be there and He says, the way that you're going to approach your dwelling among these godless people is you're going to pray for them. That's what you're going to do. You're going to seek the face of God for the community in which you live. This is your job. We'll break this into three parts. First, it's about location. Notice that he says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent. Are you noticing that? (laughs) They're where they are because God put them there. 
If you've been reading along with us, Rosaria Butterfield, I hope you have. How many of you have latched onto that, any of her books? Somebody raise a hand. Let's see if that's kind of spreading around. Oh, it ought to spread further. You need to read Rosaria Butterfield. The gospel comes with a house key. I just can't emphasize enough the necessity of reading that book and understanding the very things we're talking about today. Rosaria is famous for this quote. She says, God never gets the address wrong. Wherever you are right now, you are there with some kind of mission. Right now, wherever you are, whatever job you're in, whatever house you're in, whatever thing you're in right now, you have some kind of mission. Now, does that mean you shouldn't ever get out of that? No. I'm not saying that, hey, you're in this abusive place and since it's your mission, you don't escape abuse. You know that I'm not intending that. But while you are there, you do have a mission. And that is that you respond to whatever your situation is in a way that would please God. And so wherever you are right now, You have some kind of mission. Some kind of way in which your obedience to God in that place is going to have an effect on the place that you're in. And so God sent these people and planted them in the midst of pagan, godless people. And they're totally immersed in that. They're surrounded by it. And their location was that God planted them there. And they were to see that at least in the moment that they were in, up until however God might deliver them, that they were to live obediently to God in such a way that it would demonstrate that to others. Now think this through. When we read John 17 a few minutes ago, Jesus said, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. He's talking about us, his disciples. He's talking specifically about that group, and then he was talking about those who would believe as a result of them. That would be us. He was saying that we were going to be in the world. And then he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. In other words, the church, wherever she is located, is just like Israel. There is a sense in which the location is a mission from God in which we plead to God for the well-being of the community that we are in. Second is the word condition. Now this Verse is very important. I mean, this point is very important because there are two conditions that they're dealing with. In Jeremiah sixteen five, the Bible tells us that he removed the peace from Jerusalem. God said, I am no longer going to let my shalom, my peace, dwell on this city. And I'm going to remove it. And as a result of God removing His shalom from Jerusalem, removing His peace from Jerusalem, the whole city was in tatters. There was infighting and there was all kinds of uh, evil going on and there was all kinds of sin and it was just a horrible situation. There was the constant daily threat of war. There was the occupation of different forces that would move in. 
One time it would be the Egyptians and they would come in and they would reign for a short while. Then the Babylonians would drive them out and the Babylonians would occupy. And there was all of this going on. And so the peace is gone. And so the condition of the people who've been uprooted is that they don't have peace. And so they're praying for their own well-being. They're crying out to God for their own well-being. But they're also praying because the pagans have no peace with God because of their lack of relationship with Him. They're in shambles too. So you have a community of faith who are in shambles, a community without faith who are in shambles, all living together and calling out to God from this condition of peacelessness. He wanted the people to be really aware of their own personal condition. And he wanted them to be aware of the condition of the people they lived in. My brothers and sisters, five minutes on any news channel should give us a clear message of the condition we live in. And if you've been following the news about the Southern Baptist Convention and the fact that there's reports of churches hiding sexual abuse, my brothers and sisters, it's not just externally that we're in bad condition. Our convention's in bad condition. On any given Sunday, half of the people on Southern Baptist rolls will not even set foot in a Southern Baptist church or any church. We're missing 60% of our membership in an average Southern Baptist church. My brothers and sisters, we're just like their day. We don't have the right wholeness within, and we don't have the right wholeness without. And we need to be doing exactly what God told them. We need to be pleading for the wholeness of our community. And that gives us the third thing that we break this into, is connection. Notice the particulars here at the end of verse 7. Let me read through the verse and then notice the particular. And seek the welfare of the city, the peace, the wholeness, to which I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, what does it say next? You will have welfare. Listen carefully. The well-being is inextricably connected to the community. I've watched... I was born in 62. And I've watched all these different phases that North American Christianity has gone through. But one of the most horrendous phases that we've gone through is the finger-pointing phase. Where we spend all of our time criticizing everything. We spend our time tearing down, making light of, making joke of the brokenness of the very world that we live in. And we've become experts at criticism. And what Jesus has us doing living in the world is that we have a connection to it through our humanity, whereby what is going on in the world directly influences us, and what is going on with us directly influences the world. So that there is a connection. When you dialed 911, 
You may have someone come to your house who spent the day before blaspheming God and they may actually stand and be willing to take a bullet on your behalf to protect you because they've taken a sworn oath. They don't serve the God you serve. They don't serve the politics you serve. But you are connected to them in such a way that they may give their life to prevent your death. And you are so interconnected when you dial 911. The fireman that may come to serve you may be a person who does not share your views on sexual orientation. They may not share your views on politics. But they may risk their life bursting into your home, putting out your fire. There is a connection inside communities that Jeremiah is learning from God and passing on that we are inextricably linked to the people we live around. And spending our time defaming them and putting them down was not our call to ministry. We are connected to them night and day. The people who lay the phone lines into your house and put the internet in may be transgender. And you may have this strong biblical conviction that transgenderism is wrong, which I stand firmly behind. But you are called to pray for that person's shalom with all your heart. Not to stand there and do this. This is so serious for us. Because what was happening in Jeremiah's day, the danger was the, the same two dangers that we have. One danger is that we so isolate ourselves from the community and point at how bad the community is that the only influence that we ever have on them is a negative put down of what all they are doing wrong, never affirming that they were created in the image of God and that God loves them more than we could ever imagine loving them. Or we go to the other extreme and simply absorb into the community and become just like them. And that our connection becomes tainted because we succumb to the influences of the community. In John 17, Jesus made sure that we understood we we are in the world. Look, if his thing was to get us out of the world when we got saved, we'd have a little chute above the baptistry to kind of whisk you up into heaven. You dunk you and you're gone. <laughs> no. You, you come in one side of the baptistry, you confess your faith in Christ, you experience the glory of believers' baptism, you go out the other side and you get busy living in this community. Ball, Pineville, DeVille, Alexandria, 28 West Corridor, Grant Parish. You are connected. This community. Connected to your neighbors. And so there's this beautiful connection that he wanted them to see. Look at that last phrase again in verse 7. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So praying for the well-being of your community is also praying for your own well-being. Praying for the well-being of our city. Praying for the well-being of our neighborhoods. That we understand something here. We understand what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says to us. Jesus is our peace. 
In other words, our prayer is a little different from their prayer because our prayer is a prayer of the knowledge that the real peace that anybody that we encounter in our community is found in Jesus alone. That His redemptive power, His call to repentance, His blood shed for their sins, that's their peace. But we are praying to that end in everything we do so that our community is saturated with prayer for their well-being. What if every person in this community came to know that the thing Kingsville Baptist Church was most known for was praying for them? That that was the thing that they knew. They knew you didn't agree with them. You didn't see eye to eye with them. You didn't hold their beliefs or or keep to their values. But they knew. That when the sun would rise every day, that the tears and prayers of this people would be poured out for this community. Now this is important to understand. Because God puts the responsibility of bringing peace to the community on the people who pray for it. Don't miss this point. What God says is, you guys want a healthy community? You guys want to live in wholeness? You guys want that? Cry out for it. Call on Me, because in calling on Me, I will bring it. Think that through. He's given... A responsibility to the believer to call on God to bring what the believer, him or herself, cannot bring. And that is a wholeness, a work of the Holy Spirit, a salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone. We get the privilege of praying for that and asking God to bring it to our community. Here the responsibility is on them. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So we get this responsibility for calling out to God for our community. Praying for its salvation. Praying for its redemption. Praying for its health. Praying for its families. Praying for its safety. We get to do. Number two, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles teaches us to live and pray with a sense of mission. The greatest missionary work in any community is the prayer of the missionary. The greatest missionary work in any community is the prayer. Of the missionary. My brothers and sisters, we do not have strength to change humans. We don't have power to change cities. That is a power that God alone has. And so when we try to go out and do this in our own strength, whether it's by politics or by force, whether it's by some kind of scheme of mankind, 
we will ultimately fail. Because the power to change cities, the power to change communities, the power to change individual lives is in God alone. That's why He says to them, pray to the Lord to bring this down to them. And so, we pray and we live with a sense of mission. Come with me to John 17 and look at that sense of mission fleshed out in gospel ministry. He says it so plainly in John 17. Jump there with me. He says this in verse 15. Okay, here's your mission. I do not ask, John 17, 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In other words, they're there. But look at what he says. In verse 18, as thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Why? Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe. That's the mission. This is it. Why aren't we being zapped up through the baptistry? Why are we all breathing air up here today? We're on mission. And we're here that the world may believe. This is it. This is the mission. Jeremiah wrote this letter under the influence of the Lord to lay out a plan for a community that would be the very model plan that Jesus would use when He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Then He said in Acts 28 that the Holy Spirit would come to them and they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. That's what was going to happen. The very thing that's happening to them. And then Peter picks up on the mindset. Jump over there. That's why I included this. In First Peter chapter 2, this is the mindset that Peter has. And here's what he says. He says in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved... I urge you as aliens and strangers. What is he saying? You guys are exiles. You're not of this kingdom. You're not of Baal. You're not of Pineville. You're not of Deville. You're not of Grant. You're not of 28 East or 28 West Quarters. You're not. You're not of Alexandria. No, 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 no. You're of heaven. And you are on a mission trip. Sent by Jesus to live as an exile and as an alien, as a stranger in an unbelieving land and an unbelieving world. And so there's this sense of mission. Second, there's a sense of vision. That sense of vision comes from First Peter chapter 2 of a day. It's mentioned in the 70 years. It's mentioned in Jesus' return in His prayer. And it's mentioned in First Peter chapter 2. There's this vision of a day. There's a day coming when every one of us will give an account before the living God. 
There's a day that we're working toward, the consummation of the ages, the return of Christ. There's a day we're looking toward the establishment of His kingdom, the day of the Lord. We're looking to a forward time that today is having an effect on, that today is mattering then. And so as they were to work together in Babylon, they were to think in terms of, in 70 years will this community be ready to return and take up where we left off and where we failed. They were living with a vision in mind. Jesus had His disciples living with a vision of His return. Will you be ready? So many of His parables were this vision of a return. Peter says the day of visitation in chapter uh, 2, verse 12. The day, of his, the day of the reckoning, the day of the Lord. And so there's this idea that we're laboring not for this moment, but for a day. When every soul will give account to God. And that whether or not we were faithful missionaries in our own mission field, will be brought to light. Whether or not we were doing what we were actually sent to do. The Apostle Paul says it like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to render an account for what we have done and receive recompense, whether it is good or evil. And then he jumps right in and says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What's Paul saying? He's saying, because you know you're going to give an account to Jesus, you are persuading others to be ready to give an account to Jesus. You're living with a sense of mission and with a sense of vision. But finally... A sense of compassion. The Israelites were in trouble. Their lives were falling apart. Their country was under a succession of sieges. More than 10,000 of them had been whisked away and force marched hundreds of miles. No bus, no airplane force marched hundreds of miles, resettled in a community where they had no idea what the language was. They couldn't read the sign on a restaurant. They couldn't tell what anything was. They were totally, absolutely in disarray. They knew what it was like to be disoriented and not have peace. And because they knew God could be a source of peace for them, they were to have compassion that God would be the source of peace for others. All of us who are true believers who are sitting here, everyone who's truly regenerate, everyone who's truly been born again, you remember somewhat, somehow, of the unease and lack of peace that you experienced before Christ. You know it. You can count back a little ways 
And you can remember the terrors of hell or the fears of judgment or the graces of the cross. You can remember that and you can recall it and you can remember. And what God wants us to do as believers is draw from that memory and look out into this world and understand that's what everybody without Jesus is living with every day. And there should be a deep compassion in us for the peaceless community we live in. For the broken families and homes and lives. For the sordidness and the darkness and the way that the enemy is lying, lying, lying to the people. And they're eating it up. And they're doomed. We see this in Jesus' ministry. When He stood on the hill overlooking Jerusalem. The Bible says, He wept aloud and cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. Jesus' compassion should be aching from the depths of our hearts as we look at our own brokenness in the church family and we look at the brokenness of our world. And it should turn all of our hearts to one thing. Prayer. The heart of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles was to pray. Living in that community. Was to pray for that community. It was to understand the connection with the community. I want to ask you, and I just want to, I, I don't want you to say anything to me. I just want you to say it to yourself and if you would like to, to say it to the Lord. But in all earnestness, Are we praying for our community? Are we earnestly, deeply, sincerely praying for our community? Because if we want to see change, it won't come because our capital campaign was successful. And I'm thankful for that. It won't come because we've got the right strategies. It will come because we, the people of God, humble ourselves and pray and seek His face. Turn from our own wicked ways. I believe if the church did that. It would be like in the book of Acts. We would be shaken. And we would go out with a brand new boldness to live on mission with vision by way of compassion. Would you pray with me? I'm going to ask you, would you come and pray at the altar? Come and pray for the community. Come and pray for your neighbors. 
Just, just come on. If you feel led to pray for somebody, come. And let's begin to just pour our hearts out to God and to pray for the brokenness that's all around us and all inside us. And that our invitation today would just be to pray. Some of you, you need to pray to God to save you. You know that the need right now that's greatest isn't your neighbor or your child or your friend. It's you. And you need Jesus right now. I'm going to ask you to pray to Him to save you. To ask Him to forgive you and to tell Him you believe this good gospel that He has died for your sins and He's been raised from the dead. That you would pray and ask Him now that we as a people would humble ourselves and pray. families are